Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and once again, I'm joined by Cam Maitland and Alicia Fletcher, and this is the A Year in Film Podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I may be overstepping my bounds here, but to me, horror is a genre that I'd say the majority of people don't enjoy or watch on a regular basis. At least, they say they don't. It's sort of relegated to October, where it's socially acceptable to watch a horror movie. But every now and then, something slips through the cracks for mainstream audiences, and it's labeled prestige horror. Think of like The Exorcist getting nominated for 10 Oscars in 1973, or more recent praise for movies like Babadook, Hereditary, or Midsommar. But what's one of the best ways to get your horror movie to a wider audience? Well, you can add subtitles. Non-English language horror has a pretty good track record of gaining attention from a wide audience, and the 2000s were a huge time for non-North American horror, due in part to the fact that Hollywood was remaking a ton of it, thank you Japan's Ringu, and foreign directors working in Hollywood, like Guillermo del Toro, were opening the doors for distribution for a number of their countrymen who were doing movies that, hey guys, guys, you really need to see this. What's the first horror movie from outside North America you guys saw that you loved? Alicia, I know you're not a huge horror fan, but I'm sure there's something on your list. I don't know. Can Cam answer first while sure. I contemplate this, despite <laughs> having had days to <laughs> contemplate it? No, no, it's fine. <laughs> uh, I think thanks uh, thanks in large part, uh, shout out to the metro cinema in edmonton uh they were very good at showing foreign releases uh so i can't think of which was the first but kind of around the 2000s the big ones i remember are kiyoshi kurosawa's cure and Mm -hmm. uh guillermo del toro's uh the devil's backbone are two of the kind of first big ones that really super affected me yeah i i just remember loving those and and from then on i mean i also remember the drambui showcase review i really love day of the beast Mm -hmm. uh by alex de la iglesia uh, so yeah, I, I've, I've loved Spanish horror for a long time, which we'll get into a lot of those films and, and most public libraries, to be honest, have a lot of foreign horror. So if you're looking for horror in the public library, you're more likely to get it in the foreign section, uh, cause they don't really stock Texas Chainsaw Massacre as much as you might want. Well, I think that helps me answer because I think it's because Criterion Collection is so strong in its foreign horror section. So Criterion in the mm-hmm. Janice Collection. So my first uh, foreign horror experiences were definitely through, you know, I was just making my way when I was learning about film through every Criterion spine number I could get. And the two, like, the the one that's the earliest for me that I remember terrifying me was The Vanishing, which is mm-hmm. um, a Dutch film from 1988, uh, not a typical horror film. And then also anything by Guillermo del Toro. So coming back to what you're saying, Cam, with, with Spanish mm-hmm. uh, language, but certainly The Devil's Backbone was the one that, as someone who has a hard time with horror films, The Devil's Backbone was like, okay, I mm. will be missing out on so much if I don't allow myself to watch 
foreign language horror films. For me, I was living on Commercial Drive in my early 20s and uh, with a bunch of stand-up comedians. And of course, none of us had any money whatsoever. <laughs> so on Fridays, we would pool whatever change we had together and we'd go to the video rental place around the corner that had like an unbelievable selection. And we'd pull like whatever looked the weirdest off the shelf, mm-hmm. either like, like it had a back cover that made us go, sorry, what? Um, <laughs> and so we found this movie called Suicide Club uh, mm. that's Japanese. And uh, we put it on and uh, one of our <laughs> roommates came home from work later and we're all sitting there with like blankets <laughs> up to our noses watching this thing and he's like it's a musical and we're like it wasn't until yeah. now <laughs> it is now and uh that kind of started a whole thing for all of us we're like we got quebecois horror we were just sure. seeing whatever we could get um and it's so great that that's now such a big distribution mm-hmm. you're right that it's the good era of weird Japanese horror happiness of the categories is another one. Yeah, Takeshi Mike, all those. Yeah. Yeah, Itchy the Killer. Yeah. There's something so unpredictable about foreign horror Mm -hmm. because in in North American English language culture, we have very specific things we're afraid of that we make movies about. And then you see what other cultures are scared of and they add their own Mm -hmm. folklore in. So think about something like Cabinet of Dr. Caligari or Nosferatu. That's whole different ways of like, even from the very beginnings of cinema, you're looking at scary stuff from other countries. That's a great Mm. example. I am someone who specializes in German expressionism so as much as I'm like, I don't like horror. I, uh, yeah, have, I'm very, very much embroiled up in it. But um, do you think a lot of it too is because, and I I think I experienced this when watching both of the films we're about to talk about, because you're reading subtitles, you can't turn away or you don't know what's happening. Because <laughs> I'm someone, when I'm forced to watch a, a recent horror film, I will I, I have no qualms about covering my eyes. But when you do that with something that has dialogue in a foreign language, you don't know what they're saying. I agree. I think you make an excellent point that like you can't look away. And often I find like some of them are just straight up gross and they're mm. doing stuff that's kind of outside the boundaries of what we would deem acceptable. Um, but a lot of it too is just so unusual in terms of its plotting. It's doing, especially Japanese stuff, really is all out of sequence and it's doing yes. stuff that's that we don't really consider narratively. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, they don't have to make a big budget studio film for Paramount the way that most of the horror films that we watch today do. So there's a, there's probably more freedom, certainly in... And I think also horror, going back to German expressionism, was always seen in film in other countries as an artistic endeavor. You know, yeah, graphic arts and all these things get tied into it in a way that didn't come until much later. Uh, you know, and something like horror in Hollywood, if you look at the 1930s, like Universal Films, they're just looking at the German expressionists. Like, they hadn't really developed their own sense of it yet. Yeah, and I think it's much more um, precious in most countries. Like, uh, yes. it is not as mass-produced. Yeah. Maybe Japan gets close. I mean, we're talking about 2007, which is kind of the middle of the new extremity in France, which produced right. a lot. In most countries, as we'll get into, horror movies are a lot more rare and treated a lot more seriously because they're not this mass-produced product. I think they also, um, at least from a North American perspective, they tend to get into prestigious film festivals like TIFF, mm-hmm. like Sundance in the world section, and Telluride. And it, because it's like, well, it's a foreign film, it's artsy because it's yeah. in a foreign language. So we're going to put it in TIFF in a way that, you know, it wouldn't necessarily be marketed that way in its, its home country. Mm-hmm. They also get nominated, as we're going to talk about, they get nominated for major awards in their own country mm-hmm. in a way we don't nominate those films. So, oh, like yeah. I said, the, the Exorcist was the last horror movie. People thought that Hereditary was going to get in there, but mm-hmm. it didn't. People count Silence of the Lambs as an Oscar-winning horror movie, but it's a bit of a stretch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
Oh, man, I'm so glad you brought up Silence of Lambs because, like, I can see why people think it's a horror. I think it's more of a thriller, but it definitely falls into that final girl trope. And our first movie today also sits in that final girl kind of horror trope. Uh, and it's a really juicy final girl role for its lead, a Spanish actress and real-life TV news presenter, Manuela Velasco. Uh, the movie is a bottle episode, and uh, it sparked a days-long debate in my household on the difference between stupid and panicking. The movie is Wreck, and uh, we'll be spoiling the heck out of this one. It is impossible to discuss it and not spoil it. So if you haven't seen it and don't want to know what happens, go watch it, come back, we'll wait. Alicia, you're making a face because we made you watch this for the first time. Mm -hmm. What did you think? Oh, this is the one, this is one of the scariest films I've ever seen. This equals, <laughs> so Wreck equals, um, like, when I saw The Exorcist at 12 years old at a sleepover, that first experience of seeing a very adult a horror film, that I, I was really transported back to being a 13-year-old worried about peeing in my sleeping bag, <laughs> like, <laughs> really, despite being a mature woman uh, many years later. I was impressed by how well done this was. I, I luckily knew very little going in, so I went in completely fresh, um, which is good. Um, I didn't know that this had been remade into quarantine, which actually I had seen and uh, now understand. I really went in with fresh eyes, and uh, it is so hyper-intensive and so frenetic. And so there's lots of jump scares, which I... I think I automatically disrespect horror films that rely on jump scares. I think it's cheap usually, but this this masters them in a way that uh, can only be done when you don't tell your actors what's about to happen and you throw <laughs> a <lot> alien. <laughs> yeah, you throw a cadaver down like seven flights of stairs and make <laughs> and then record their reactions. Yeah, this is this is you know it takes place in Barcelona and uh, even like it takes place within an apartment building that's been completely boarded up because not boarded up. Sorry, like. I guess quarantined because there's a, an unknown virus that's going around, and um, I felt um automatically like I'd stayed in this in this apartment building. Like it's it does a really good job of making you feel like anyone could be in this situation. Yeah, I thought I was going to pee myself. I might I watched it with my partner who has seen it. I think a number of times and has seen the whole series because I believe there's four films. There's um, four currently. of them. Yes, they don't all have the just quickly. They don't all have the same like found footage sort sort of thing. The first yes. one and the second mm -hmm. one do. The other two are more standard. The third one films. is half and half. Yeah, I gotcha. But he, you know, it was really late and he started to like fall asleep at what I would say is the climax of the scariest part of the film, and I was. <laughs> Normally, I would just let him fall asleep because I don't care, but I was like completely nudging him. And I was like, I do not, you're I, like, I need cognizance <laughs> beside <laughs> me in order for me to get through this film. Uh, and I did, uh, I did have nightmares. I had nightmares. Oh, it was, I'm sorry. Um, that's okay. I, I mean, I was <laughs> as responsible in choosing to talk about this film as anyone. So I think I'm the one who said, like, oh, this is the year Wreck came out. We need to talk about Wreck. Yes, I think mm -hmm. we shared right. our oh, other I film love with it this too. one. Yeah, don't get me wrong. Uh, yeah. it's, it's just such an, it's such a game changer and it's such an mm. important part of film history that I don't think a lot of people pay attention to because this is the same year. 2007 is also the same year that Paranormal Activity came out. 
And mm-hmm. so everybody remembers the Blair Witch Project, and everyone sort of falsely remembers that that started the found footage horror boom, but it really didn't. The Blair Witch later. came out, and and yeah, yeah that came out, and like nothing happened, even though it's like an incredibly cheap way to make movies. Well, I can tell you what happened is called Blair Witch Two: Book of Shadows, <laughs> which <laughs> no one liked and made no money. Well, that's because it was more of a narrative film, wasn't it? They yeah, oh yeah, it wasn't found okay. footage at all. But yeah, I think it's really a catch up of the technology because this year you also have George Romero's Diary of the Dead, which is this reboot of his own series. And next year, but as early as possible, January, Cloverfield comes out, which I think from then on out, everybody wants to make one of these cheap, make a lot of money. I mean, Paranormal Activity, I think to this day, might be one of the most profitable films of all time. So uh, it's what gave us so much, uh, gave us... uh, Oh, God, what's his name? The guy who makes all the cheap movies that are horror. Jason Blumhouse. <laughs> yeah, so it gave us Blumhouse, which then gave us uh, the latest Oscar-winning horror movie, Get Out. So you can trace it all back. <laughs> well, it's also speaking to the fact that something really big happened in 2005, and that was the launch of YouTube. And so mm-hmm. a lot of these filmmakers were starting to be like, oh, I can make stuff and then distribute it myself and put it out on there. Um, it made it a whole new way that you could then look at how to make these films films super cheap, super tight, and just get them out there. And I know uh, the two filmmakers of Wreck looked at YouTube, and that's what kind of inspired them to make this, was what would happen if you just had a camera in one location, and that it's just like a shotgun blast, and it goes. And that's exactly what this film does. Yeah, and even beyond that, Paco Plaza, one of the co-directors, this is a film that's co-written and co-directed, he said that he was just inspired looking at the different types of cameras, Hmm. said vintage footage on YouTube really inspired him just to think about that kind of handheld footage again, that they were not necessarily as inspired by the old found footage movies, which also, you know, you talk about Blair Witch, like Cannibal Holocaust is a yeah. uh, found footage movie from the 70s. So those movies had kind of also always exist. We might talk about Man Bites Dog, one of yeah. my favorite found footage documentaries. I mean, I think it's really the technology catching up. The truth is Blair Witch was made cheaply, but it's made mostly on film cameras. Mm. Uh, and the digital photography was not quite cinema worthy till about this time. And also, if you think going forward, even up to Cloverfield, I believe, not a lot of these are the shot on phone yet, which I think really caused a boom. Once everyone was carrying around a little camera in their pocket, it made so much more sense. The justification of why somebody is filming in found footage uh, makes so much more sense when everyone has a camera and every camera has a light and things like that. Uh, It's actually quite fascinating. A lot of people point to Wreck as an interesting time when phones weren't lights. (laughs) <laughs> because right, there's a otherwise lot of the film darkness. Work. Yeah. Yeah, as you see. But yeah, it's it's a it's a very unique time. I will also point it's a very unique time in Spanish horror history. I'm gonna go back do my usual thing of being like Spain was founded in you know. <laughs> a lecture uh, by Cameron Maitland. But, uh, <laughs> We're gonna go back to Columbus, the discovery. Yes. And, uh, uh you know what? Don't joke because it does no. go back to that event. Uh no, but uh Spanish horror is a very unique uh genre. I, I think a lot of people think of Spanish language horror, but uh, they are actually thinking quite often of Latin American and South mm-hmm. American horror uh, because that was big alongside Hollywood's boom in the 30s and 40s. What's considered the golden age of Spanish horror is really the 60s, weirdly, because there were not a lot of uh, Spanish horror movies since the silent era, essentially. There's a handful in the silent era, mm-hmm. kind of nothing. Then the golden era is also not movies that people necessarily love. It's just Franco. It's quite often films where they are bringing in other European actors or European directors to shoot in Spain. And it's quote unquote about Spain. So in the 90s, there is what is considered the new golden age of Spanish horror, which is what 
really both of these guys come out of uh home belasco and paco plaza uh and that's with movies like uh dia de la biesta like we said alex de la iglesia's film which won a ton of goya awards alejandro amenabar's thesis which is also kind of again a very seriously considered art film almost but it's a horror movie uh, the devil's backbone as we said which is guillermo del toro mm-hmm. who's from mexico but making a film about spanish history mm-hmm. and uh so much of this is because of uh the fall of franco like the end of the terror in the 60s is kind of what allowed horror and then but horror really picked up because drum roll in 1992 because of these 500 year anniversary <laughs> one of the big things was uh europe declaring spain the cultural center of Europe uh, and it injected a lot of money and a lot of these guys were suddenly able to have a lot more artistic freedom in the films they created. Thank you, Christopher um, Columbus. I yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't it wasn't all Columbus, but it's that World's Fair Columbus, everything happening at once that we talked about in 1992. Uh, a lot of people really credit I think that. Christopher with Christopher Columbus ability. is an icon in horror. If you want <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> Absolutely. And if you want to get super theoretical, uh, also this era is when uh, Prime Minister Zapatero was in charge. He was uh, a very very progressive uh, socialist mm. prime minister. He cared a lot about it. He had a cabinet that was 50-50 men and women, which is fairly unusual mm-hmm. uh, to this day in any country. <laughs> uh, and he also uh, kind of uh, got in trouble with the church because he didn't care so much about the Pope. Uh, so <laughs> oh, you look out. Say, well, I mean, that's, uh, that's interesting because this film also as well deals with religious themes, mm-hmm, even though mm-hmm. it's still terrifying without the religious themes, which most movies that are about a religious issue, it's about that and how scary religion is. That's not what this is at all. Oh, totally. Like, this is very easy to consume. It's kind of a a thing you always have to grapple with, with Spanish horror, to me, is these movies are very easy to consume as fun horror movies. Yeah. Uh, They're very easy to consume as, like, face value. This is just like a roller coaster ride spook. It's like, I, I saw it at a film festival. I agree with Alicia. It's the scariest... Uh, probably one of the most frightening theatrical experiences I've Mm -hmm. had. Um, But then it has all these layers. So every time time a a Spanish movie has a hint of fascism, (laughs) like (laughs) uh, write an exclamation mark. So the fact that these people are locked in by a government, the government doesn't tell them what to do. They're expected to follow orders no matter what is said. Big deal. Uh, The fact that there is a religious cover-up by the Catholic Church. Vatican. uh, Big deal. Uh, The fact, again, like you say, that this is a woman who's uh, going against men. The fact that there's something that's as macho as the bombarderos. Quite often, the final girl means so much more in Spanish cinema because the the fact that like machismo is such a big thing. That what they call in high end theory the phallic failure Mm -hmm. of so many of these male characters. But this movie also just has what seems like relatively stereotypical touches of uh, the Asian immigrants, uh, the gay guy who's in the apartment building but all of this is kind of a commentary on like oh look at the new spain this Mm -hmm. is a an like a very interesting melting pot and some of it works some of it doesn't people are fighting against each other these are people that are in the slums too right like it's a slum building yeah 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 and it's like these people should be working together but these these kind of new divisions which spanish culture doesn't accommodate for are are really hurting them it's a slum building but i have to say as a resident of toronto as much as I was very connected to how scary this film was, I was admiring how tall the ceilings were and just how much space <laughs> yes. there was in the apartment. Say, it just lets uh, the zombies get a bigger run up to come I was like, get oh, you. Alicia. I'd be I'd be really scared. I'd be like, oh my god, what's in that corner? But I'd be like, but then I'd also be like, that's a nice closet. 
<laughs> yeah. Oh my god. I I I have to say that that is a constant thing in Spanish movies where I never understand what is a crummy apartment. Homie Belgaro has a very good other movie which I would recommend any uh, listener watch called Sleep Tight, uh, which is also about like a slumlord apartment owner uh, who's a creep. Uh, but you're like, yeah, wait, these are bad apartments. <laughs> yeah. My God, I want them. The beautiful tile work. <laughs> yeah. Please come to Toronto, and uh, the best apartment in Toronto is like a yeah, slum. I, we would <laughs> listen if I could pay less than a grand to live with a, an evil uh, possessed girl and, you know, <laughs> sign me up just keep her door locked well let's talk about how this is effective because horror is much maligned found footage even more so like yeah. that's a subgenre that people are really not into we've all said that this works how mm. does it work why is it so effective if uh, you want a, a great theoretical one i read uh, by <laughs> a critic named uh, randall colburn uh he points to the fact that it's relatively unusual in horror. And I think Alicia was, was talking about it too. It's unusual that you are a step behind. Yeah. Uh, quite often thrillers, stuff like Halloween and Jaws is letting the audience in on what is going to happen. You see the shark's fin. You see Michael Myers in the mm-hmm. background. You're, you're going, no, no, don't go in there. But he says what is so scary about Wreck is the disorientation, mm-hmm. that you are literally a step behind the characters. He, uh, he compares it to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. where it is so chaotic and crazy that as an audience, you are scared and you are also struggling to understand what is going on. And I think the way the story unfolds is even more ingenious because you're at first you're like, OK, it's a crazy person. OK, it's a zombie movie. OK, oh God, it's, it's an movie. exorcism. <laughs> yeah. OK, there's a horrible monster. And that's actually as the Rex series progresses. That even gets more and more, mm-hmm. where it's like, okay, it's a Catholic conspiracy. Okay, do I side with the demon? <laughs> okay. <laughs> like, yeah. And, and uh, I think that that works so well. And I also think it's the reality, again, like you say, uh, Manuela Velasco is a real reporter, uh, so she seems so real. I mean, I think this is also has a deep commentary on sensationalistic journalism in Spain, which thesis is also about a lot, uh, just like, you know, ambulance chasing violence. But uh yeah, I think you're just throw, so thrown in. But the fact that you, what you say, so many of these scares, the film was not improvised, but it was essentially handed to the people as it happened. Yeah, and they so many of the creative, scares, they didn't have an idea of what their characters, what would their characters would be subjected to. They weren't sure if they, what day yeah. they were going to die or how they were going to die. They were just told, "Hey, just try to survive." That was yeah. their motivation. Just try and to ju- survive. Which I think makes the characters probably more realistic because these people were trying to deeply embody these characters. Uh, And I think it makes some of the scares so Mm -hmm. brutal. Like, for instance, I mean, the most famous sequence, I think it's even in the trailer, is uh, when Manuela Velasco is being seen through the uh, night vision camera and she can't see what's going on. And she did not know what was in the room. (laughs) She actually could not see. It was in the dark. She actually did not know that there was a monster person in the room with her. It's also like the poster (laughs) is her in night vision. She So for me... Part of why this is so scary is the effectiveness of her performance. And, you know, you mentioned earlier, Cam and, and Becky, too, that she was um, a newscaster and like a TV presenter. I didn't realize because I recognized her and I was like, I mean, obviously, I do not watch Spanish television that often. I've been to Spain mm-hmm. a number of times, but not in a way that I would recognize a TV presenter. And then I realized she's the little girl in a Moldavar's Law of Desire from 1987. Oh. So her like so as much as like she is a newscaster and she's a TV presenter, her mm-hmm. history in Spanish film is like very prestigious going back to the 1980s when she she would have been very young like I think she's maybe 12 or something like that in Law of Desire 
I think something that also really works for me, because the found footage, like 90% of your job is like, why aren't these people just putting the camera down and running? Like that's, yes. that's the biggest obstacle you have to overcome. And with this one, what's so great about it is it's because she's a professional and yeah. she's there to get the shot. She's going to get it done. And she keeps screaming at them, film everything. Yeah. And she's professional until she absolutely cannot be anymore. And that speaks to her performance as well. That you believe she is this like, I'm getting out of this terrible thing where I have to follow people around after dark. I want normal daylight hours. I want a better job. Yeah. And that's her motivation, right? Yeah, she wants the good story. And then the fact that I think it also matters that they are turning the story into a good story. It goes from uh, just a good kind of ambulance chasing story, as I say, to a story where she thinks she's uncovering this government corruption and then maybe it's Catholic corruption and it gets bigger and bigger. And like you say, Becky, this is a film. She won the Goya Award for Best mm-hmm. New Actress. So it, it was recognized and <laughs> we are not alone. Uh, it is not a mistranslation. Uh, yeah. It's also what you see, right? Because this is shot so beautifully and you don't see anything you're not supposed to see until right. it's way too late. And part of that is the fact that the cinematographer is the dude behind the camera the entire time. That's you know- you never meet. You never like you never it's so him. effective. You hear his voice and we know his name. And beyond that, like his death is in some ways the most brutal because he's her only lifeline and the only way that she can really see is through the camera. But also like we have we don't even know what he looks like or what yeah. his deal is. Like he was her best hope and, and he's just when that camera hits the ground, you're like, Wow, what what oh, what are we gonna do now? <laughs> <laughs> and I want to just talk quickly about expectations because this is the part that like really created a massive debate in my household. This film is now off limits for discussing um, is because the death <laughs> of Manu, who's the firefighter, who is also like, you know, the champion is set up to be like yeah. the, the man who's going to make everything better. He dies without announcement, without without ceremony. He just pops out and you know he's gone and now he's a zombie and, mm-hmm. and there everybody's alone. And my partner got so mad at that because he's like, but he was such a big part of the movie. Why didn't he get a hero's death? It really That's upset like him. That's life, yeah. Becky's yeah. partner. <laughs> Thank you. I, that's what that's I'm trying to tell him. Like, it's, it's effective because of this. You're not it's, understanding. It's, it's funny because I, part of me wants to say, you should watch the rest of the series with him. And part of me is like, <laughs> maybe this might just be digging the hole deeper. My it's, relationship needs to survive this podcast, guys. It's interesting it. that we've been talking no. about this film for like, you know, 20 odd minutes. And this is the first time the word zombie came up. Because when mm-hmm. I, after, I really had to sit down and think, like, is this a zombie film? It's definitely not a traditional zombie film. It is a zombie film, I think. It's a virus, you know, it's in a way that mm-hmm. zombie films in the 2000s, especially with uh, George A. Romero, you know, this idea of virus equals zombieism. While I was watching it, just the other night, I waited as long as I could to watch this film before <laughs> having to do it. All I, you know, you're talking about this virus, and we're going to talk about it again with our next film. It's it's something in 2020. It's something to, to have a horror film that is so scary about a virus that you cannot control, and you start quarantining mm-hmm. people, and your people are getting experimented on, and there's a government conspiracy. Like I, I'm having, a, I'm having a hard time watching these films this week. <laughs> <laughs> I will also say that there's a like a lot of people point when you talk about the zombie film. People point to this one as a very interesting mix mm-hmm. of the Romero zombie and the pre-Romero zombie because this returns the zombie to religious implications. It's true. It also to like the voodoo roots. Yeah, that's true. It also incorporates Incorporates kind of the 20 days later zombie of, mm-hmm. oh, they run and they can take stairs way faster than you. 
And they yes. make a horrible and, screeching sound, so they're loud too. Yeah. And it, I, I, my memory of two is is less set, but I also think that these ones are nearly impossible to kill. Like I think yeah. you can take their head off, and they don't actually die. Oh, they God. just keep coming at you. Well, just quickly, we should talk about the the monster because the monster is one yes. of those yes. ones. Unlike the movie we're next going to be talking about, where you get to see a lot of the monster. This one, it's mm-hmm. very minimal. You don't even know there is a big bad until all of a sudden mm-hmm. they're in the room. Uh, Cam, you've got a little bit about this actor. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I really love uh, this guy. This is a creature performer. It's really kind of his breakout creature. Uh, People probably know him from Mama, mostly. Uh, His name is Javier Botet. He's he's essentially like kind of the the next Doug Jones, Mm -hmm. though he and Doug Jones happily work together all the time when you need a a big guy. Uh, So Javier Botet has Marfan syndrome, uh, which is quite often what I think a lot of scary monsters these days are trying to ape. Uh, He is six foot seven and 120 pounds. Uh, to give you an idea of what he looks like. Mm-hmm. Marfan syndrome affects a lot of your connective tissue, but what it ends up giving you is one thing is incredibly long fingers, just fingers that are out of control. Uh, he's also, like, he's in It, he's in The Conjuring. He's pretty much in everything now. If you see a very long, skinny monster, Guillermo del Toro happily pairs him and uh, Doug Jones all the time. Crimson Peak, he's a lot of the monsters. I think I recognize uh, him from Crimson's Peak, which is a film oh, yeah. I love, yeah. And actually he shows up quite a bit in Spanish film, uh, not as a creature as well. He he's quite fun in witching and bitching. If you've seen that movie, I have. He just plays oh yeah, the guy. That's he's the guy that's chained up in the basement. Yeah, when you see this monster, it is so surreal, and you're like, oh god, what kind of special effect created this? <laughs> and the truth is, it's it's pretty basic makeup effects and just what his body and looks the night like. vision too, because we're only yes, experiencing the, the monster through the lens of the camera in night vision, which is. so so effective. Which yes. I also believe is one of the only, or one of the first uh, uses of that for horror in mm-hmm. that way. You mm-hmm. hadn't really seen it before. Yeah, and it's it's a very fascinating role. He also actually frequently, I think like Doug Jones, frequently plays women, and this is a, a, a female character, mm-hmm. which I think is very interesting, uh, just their ability to sort of do that. And I, and I think he's somebody who is committed himself very hard to his craft and that's why he's very quickly risen somebody that looks unique i mean doug jones's whole thing was that he was a uh, contortionist mm-hmm. yeah he could fit inside the mac tonight uh, outfit you know yeah exactly yeah. his big break was mac tonight uh, <laughs> javier botets was naked crazy woman <laughs> who's possessed by the devil uh but yeah it's uh it's an amazing performance and he's somebody to really look out for because uh i love as much as i love doug jones i think guillermo del toro unfortunately kind of drove him into the ground Hmm. his performance style so i think when him and javier botet can play off each other uh it's really great i know that they they filmed a uh star trek discovery together i've never seen it but i was like oh they're together (laughs) (laughs) go watch two guys please please go watch this is your go watch crimson Crimson peak Peak has both of them as well (laughs) playing different monsters and yeah it just i love creature performers and, and there's not a ton of them so uh it's very interesting and it's interesting to see somebody use their abilities you know he's hired for his his disability uh and he uses it wonderfully and and has grown to become this great performer all right well as we're talking about monsters i think that fits beautifully into our next film uh, because it is all about different kinds of monsters now bong joon ho is a name that until 2019 i'm sure a lot of people hadn't heard before and then suddenly his movie was responsible for the first ever foreign language film winning the best picture category at the oscars That movie was Parasite, and if it didn't make him a household name, his work certainly got a lot of people wondering what else they were missing from around the world. 
Well, back in 2007, Bong Joon-ho broke records in his native South Korea as well with a movie that was, at the time, the highest-grossing Korean film ever. Uh, Fortunately, it got a North American theatrical release, and I actually saw this one in the theater with uh, four other people, two of them whom I dragged with me. And there was actually confusion when I tried to buy the ticket at at the box office because the ticket seller instead sold us a ticket for Richard Gere's The Hoax and was completely unsure as to why we would even want to bother going to see a movie from Korea. And uh, it's the closest I think I've ever gotten to calling someone a Philistine. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe that's the closest you've gotten, Becky. You've called plenty of people Philistines. Not with the full intention behind it. Uh, That having been said, this movie, the minute I saw it, entered my top 10 of favorite movies I've seen. Guys, I love 2007. Um, Let's talk about The Host. Yeah, The Host is, I mean, it's a monster film. And Bong Joon-ho, it's his, I believe it's his third film. Um, Most notably in 2003, he produced uh, or directed um, Memories of Murder, which was a huge hit. And that's what kind of led to The Host being so well-received. I think of it as like a big budget film. It's not. It was made for for $10 million, which is unbelievable. What's so different about the about the host and in its Korean title translates very literally to monster. So it's it's a bit of a, it's an interesting kind of translation trick where like the host to me means something very different than monster, but I'm curious what you guys think about the title. It does what most monster films, I would say all monster films and especially Wreck do not, which is it shows the monster in its full form, in this case in daylight. I think 12 minutes into the film. So there isn't that, Cam, the way you're talking about Wreck and why it's so effective is that, you know, it's not like Jaws where you've seen the shark early on and you have Mm -hmm. to like, no one else has seen it and like the audience is in on it. We're not in, we're, we're just with all the characters of the film because they all see the monster right away. And yeah. it makes it so much scarier. And the monster is produced by the special effects house Weta. Weta's new from New Zealand, right? Isn't yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. That's, yeah that's, the, that's the Peter Jackson yeah. related. And done really, really well. It's got this crazy mouth and a prehensile tail. And it's just like, it makes no sense. And it's kind of a fish. <laughs> we are led as viewers to know what's going on. And this is based on a real incident in 2000 where the American military um, who were stationed in South Korea flushed large quantities of formaldehyde down the drains, which led into the Han River in Seoul and created a lot of pollution. And there was a lot of awareness of potentially fish mutations. So the film opens with that. So we kind of get a sense of like, well, first of all, this film is, you know, it's about a mutated monster. But we also are made very well aware right from the beginning by Bon Joon-ho that this is the U.S.'s fault. This is this is an issue of imperialism and um, international intervention. And he really bases this monster film, which all good monster films do, on actual politics. So as a Canadian-American watching it, I— in 2007, because it, it, it is a 2006 film in, in South Korea, but is released in North America in March of 2007. As someone watching it then, I wasn't really aware of these real incidents. I wasn't really interpreting what this meant about international intervention. I was just so scared of this monster. And <laughs> the, the, the main character who is attacked by this monster and, and kept in a sewer is a little girl. And it's up to her family, her father, her grandfather, her aunt, and her um, uncle to save her because they know she's alive because she has her cell phone. When the, animal swallow, when the monster swallows her and dumps her in the sewer, she's able to call them. So they all think she's dead. And, and eventually it's all about this kind of... And of course, the father, if you've seen Parasite, is um, played by... Uh, 
Song Kang-ho, who is, I think, now probably the most iconic actor in South Korea. Um, And he's played as this kind of stoner, bleach blonde, not too bright, um, single dad. But obviously the the parenting of his daughter is is done a lot by his his sister and uh, his father. But she's still everything to him. Like the stakes when she goes missing are so high. Yes, this is such an incredible role for him. It's such a great father-daughter film. This is a great Father's Day screening. (laughs) Um, Yeah. My warped brain goes, but... um, He starts as a father, he ends as a father, just not as the same child. Yes, it's true. And the government, you know, the government really is is the villain in this. It's not necessarily the monster, which in in, in producing the host, they nicknamed the monster Steve Buscemi because it reminded... It reminded them so much of the just blind evilness of Steve Buscemi's character in Fargo, which I think is really funny. Um, well, he's an animal. And, and you talking about him being like us seeing him right away. The big thing that's so scary about it is that things unfold about it later. Like there's, yes. it's mm-hmm. such a complicated character that you're like, oh, it can do that. Oh, shit, it can do that. And they don't know about that and unfolds for you in the, the same time. Yeah. And so it is really about a family that are, it's a dysfunctional family, much like Parasite. It sounds so corny, but coming together to like... And also to mm-hmm. recognize each other's that the, the the criticisms they have about each other are actually going to end up being their strengths, which I thought yeah. was really interesting. The aunt is an interesting character played by um, Duna Bay, uh, who she's an archer, but she in the beginning of the film she she's just not good enough, so she gets a bronze medal. And her storyline, her arc in this film, I, th- I think is one of my favorites. But uh, you know, it's it's uh, there's currently a statue of of Steve Buscemi on the Han River uh, that I think was erected mm-hmm. maybe four or five years ago. So this is like a real cultural touch point for the South Korean film industry. But also this monster means something to them that I think it's hard for us to understand. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's again, we talk about the serious uh, like award winner. The Blue Dragon Awards are essentially the Oscars of South Korea and it's best picture. <laughs> this yeah. this monster movie was the best picture. Yeah. And we should so, also say uh, that the North Koreans yeah. also really liked this movie because it's very anti-American. <laughs> like it really oh, I, was a big unifier. And I mean, rare. also when you ask Bong Joon-ho if it's super anti-American, he's like, uh, my big problem is that Korea lets this happen. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it, it's yes. one thing that America's bad, but my real problem is with Korea. Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, you let it all happen. Something you need to know about Bong Joon-ho is he was also a student protester. So in 1997, there was a massive economic crash in which brought down their whole government. And there was massive student protests, which then uh, went into their current era where they're now a democracy. But uh, he was very much part of that. So what you're seeing in that, um, that moment where they're all getting sprayed with like the Agent Orange, Agent Yellow, mm. that was what they were doing to protesters at the time. Yeah. Looking at the stuff from Spain, same thing. People would have looked at this and been like, oh, yeah, 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 100%. Mm-hmm, I know what that mm-hmm, is. Mm-hmm. Of all the genres, I feel like understanding the politics of the country that made it is more important in horror than many others. There's just something about horror that, or at least good horror, the, the kinds of films we're talking about that play festivals, that will always use what is decrepit and very unfortunate in their political circumstances. They will always turn that into um, an analogy or a metaphor or a character yeah. called Steve Buscemi. Yeah. Um, yes. and it's, but this is the kind of horror that I can do, unlike Wreck, because it, it has such a fantasy base. And then I get even more scared when I realize it's about actual political movements that occurred. I think you could show this to a 12 or 13-year-old, especially because the protag- two of the protagonists are school-aged children. Uh, and I think it 
could go over quite well. And this is a very funny movie, as scary yeah, as it is. Yeah, he loves comedy. It's yeah. hilarious. I was going to say, I think almost all his movies have significant comedic parts, and that's why people are like, eh? It's disarming. Uh, he disarms us with mm. comedy, and then he really actually makes a very scary film. Yeah, because even, like, Memories of Murder and Mother, which are both fairly serious yeah. films, are fairly comedic throughout, uh, which is... I think one of the, yeah. the complications with talking about Bong Joon-ho writing about Bong Joon-ho, although people have done it very well, especially recently, is he is so humble as a person. Mm. It's it's annoying how <laughs> humble he is. And Cam and I went to the Independent Spirit Awards this past, well, in the before times, let's just say. Like, yes. It was like February where you could actually still travel. Uh, and of course, he, he won big time for Parasite. And like, being in the awards tent and all of his, you know, uh, acceptance speeches and his award and his speeches to press, he gave them nothing, which I really appreciate. He took the time to essentially promote other up and coming South Korean filmmakers, including his interpreter, who is a filmmaker. Like he, he doesn't really talk a lot about his films. He he makes them and uh, he walks away. And I think that that's something that I, I find very appealing in him, actually. But it's very similar to Guillermo del Toro in the way that yes. he's very, very done a great job of kicking the door open thing. We didn't talk about it in Rec, but um, Guillermo del Toro in 2007 introduced the film The Orphanage in El Orfanto, which mm-hmm. is also mm-hmm. a phenomenal film and totally yeah, worth the time. That's so scary. That one, that one scared me too much. I was going to pee my and sleeping bag so then, too. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Oh, man. But this one, I think the other thing, like, the more you understand and, like, take the time to understand Korean history and, like, the the, the little nuances that unless you, like, really know about, like, what the word Han actually means, yeah. you're not going to get some of the symbolism. So mm. Han is based on a Chinese character, which it's a podcast, so I can't show you. Um, but it means, <laughs> like, resentment, hatred, regret. Um, but there's also an element of hope. So the fact mm. that the monster comes out of the Han River is like a big symbolic thing. It's really interesting. This was also, I think, really this. There's there's some sets, but mostly this was filmed in real sewers around the Han River, and I found that very effective. And then was very disturbed to learn that all the cast and crew had to be inoculated for tetanus and various bacterial disorders. <laughs> like, that's scary. That's, that's commitment, scary. Alicia. That's called yeah. commitment. <laughs> yeah, I love the fact when we talk about the weird ways he deflates the genre. I love the fact that you spend so much time with this family and understanding each of them and their quirks and yet at the end a random homeless guy who's bored does almost as much like he just goes like hey, i'll come along i got nothing to do that's a great and, character uh, he uh he does almost more heroic stuff than anyone else which i think is probably a little tip of the hat to the class yeah stuff that bong joon ho loves um yeah I, I think that this is a movie that just if you love his other films Uh, and you haven't seen this, it's worth seeking out. I have to admit that I was surprised that Parasite was the one that really broke through because as much Mm. as I I love Parasite, don't get me wrong, I think it's great, but I think this and Memories of Murder are both really effective in a way Parasite may not necessarily be. Yeah, I agree. I feel like this being coming after Snowpiercer or Parasite coming after Snowpiercer and Oksha, I feel like and the can backing on Parasite, it's just like, it was just time. Yeah, I think yeah. the host is as effective, like you say, or more effective than Parasite. It's just it was he. They weren't ready. We weren't ready yet for him to be on a tour or like one of our most important directors. Yeah, yeah. I also think that there's a level of subtlety that comes and goes in his works. Sure, uh, I, I don't love Snowpiercer. For I do, instance, I, do not I feel either. like it's really hammering <laughs> you on the head with its message. Yeah, and I actually think that the host 
partially like what we're talking about. It, t- it I think it took quite a lot of research on my part to even get mm-hmm. at all what it was about. Mm-hmm. Whereas Parasite, I think, is a much more like gut feeling. And just, you know, coincidentally, the, the class struggle in Korea mirrors quite a lot of North America's. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's so a timing I think issue. that helps. There is also a lot of, uh, in Korean stuff, if you watch Korean dramas like I do, and I absolutely love them, there's a lot mm-hmm. of like these extremely heightened moments that are like just normal for them that we don't yeah. do. For example, when they're mourning, what they when they think the yes. little girl has died, when they're mourning, they're all just laying on the ground and rolling around. I think and- that uh, that <laughs> actually really took me out of it when I first, I also went yeah. to it in theaters because it was so critically acclaimed. I didn't know much about Bong Joon-ho at the time. Um, but I didn't really connect with his filmmaking until Mother, I will say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and partially, I think, because I knew that the, I was so far away. Like, obviously, the moment where they're mourning is meant to be a comedic moment. Uh, but, you know, in North America, a huge display of emotion when your child has just been consumed by a monster <laughs> is not unusual. By Steve Buscemi, uh, so, specifically. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, his brother dropkicks him. That's funny. But <laughs> yeah. the fact that the the fact that even the fact that Song Kang-ho is crying like a maniac is meant to be funny because he's so far out of the norm of Korean mourning. That, so it's like I knew I could tell that I'm like, ooh, I, I'm not on the wavelength of this movie. So I think it took something a little more straightforward, like Mother or Parasite, maybe for the average person to get on board. You know what I learned a lot about from this film? South Korean snacks. Because they run a, they run a <laughs> snack stand. And I, I love that stuff. Chips and weird things. Like not South weird things Korea to us, but films food in a way I have never seen any other culture film food. They yeah. have a show uh, called Let's Eat, um, which is simultaneously a romantic comedy, a serial killer drama, and a like food porn show yeah. where they like <laughs> do these loving close-ups of like whatever they're eating. And they like breathe out all sexually like food as they like consume it it's the mm. weirdest thing but it's also wonderful they I, I, shoot food like nobody else yeah. i understand this line of thinking um. <laughs> yeah no no film will make you want an ice cold height beer yes quite like, <laughs> uh, quite like the host i think that's the perfect place to go into our next segment guys so when we come back what curmudgeonly musical theater composer made the proposed lead actress to a movie adaptation of his work send 12 audition tapes before he allowed the movie to be made. We're going to find out about that and uh, a whole bunch of dancing after the break. In the A Year in Film series, we know that the historical context in which movies are made matters. And you can't argue that one of the biggest influences into North American culture, be it from the lives it affected and cut short, to the fictional movies made about their reign of terror, is Charles Manson and the Manson family. Now, if you're like me, and you are, number one, a nerd for true crime, and number two, fascinated by how a group of individuals could affect culture so deeply, check out the definitive six-part docuseries Helter Skelter, An American Myth, and Hollywood Suite is the only place you're going to be able to catch it in Canada. Part one airs February 11th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, and every Thursday until the season finale on March 18th. And the episodes drop on demand the day after the premiere. So if you're listening to this podcast in the future, the whole series may just be available to binge right now. That's Helter Skelter, an American myth, starting February 11th to give new context to the way you watch movies. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. 
Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Up there with controversial film genres is the movie musical. It was once a staple of Hollywood from, let's say, the 30s to the 60s, although obviously they've kept producing movie musicals since then. But uh, musicals recently have very much fallen off. In fact, in the 2000s, by my count, Hollywood has only made 15 big-budget movie musicals. Broadway, however, keeps going. And every now and then, they inspire Hollywood to take another fistful of money swipe at the box office smash prize. Alicia, let's go all the way back and talk about the concept of the movie musical, what makes an effective movie musical, and uh, what was going on in 2007 that like a dozen of those 15 were released. Yeah, it's really shocking that that many musicals were released in 2007. But, you know, if we're going to talk about, and very briefly, I mean, there's there's very long tomes written on the history of musicals. We are not going to go into everything. Busby Berkeley but... was born in 19... 19- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it even kind of predates Busby Berkeley in some ways. But, uh, you know, as soon as sound became, I don't want to say invented, because we know sound and, and film was invented way before sound film became popularized. But, um, you know, if you look at the jazz singer or whatever, uh, which most people quote as the first um, sound film, which it 100% wasn't, it's 1927, you start to see the idea of like the musical as a genre, it becomes the most important genre to sell sound on film. So of course, in as, as soon as like 1929 and into the 30s, musicals are hugely appealing because it's demonstrating the new technology. And so you get this grandiosity that really is, you can't compare, especially with studios like MGM um, and Paramount. But the thing to keep in mind with the 1930s and why musicals are so important is the depression. Hmm. Musicals, as they were kind of conceived in the beginning, were about escapism. The people who were going to spend pretty much all the disposable income that they had to go see a movie were most likely impoverished and really looking for a way to sit down in a movie theater and just escape the drudgery that was the Great Depression. Well, I mean, that uh, would be North- why Shirley Temple was like the biggest box office star at the age of what, like six, seven? Yeah, or even I think starting at five years Jeez. old. Um, yeah, that that's a very good point. And so it kind of gets morphed a little bit because as North America comes out of its economic depression with the start of World War II, you know, musicals are very much there in the 40s, but they become kind of like more wartime musicals, a little bit more vested in—they're still escapists, though. They're still kind of— 
making world war glamorous and making the Navy glamorous. And that goes all the way into the 1950s. And then frankly, that kind of escapism just doesn't work anymore in the 50s and into the 60s and the, the studio system in Hollywood and censorship starts breaking. And so really, when you see the first resurgence of musicals, it's the 1970s where everything becomes like subversive musicals. Mm. So think about like the Rocky Horror Picture Show, which has come up a number of times. Greece, like, and even Greece is looking back at the 1950s and, and one of the golden ages of musicals. Well, um, I was surprised to see how late hair came out. It's 1979. Yeah. I was like, wasn't that like 65, 66? Nope, 79. Yeah, and something like Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise is a really good example of how the 70s interpreted musicals. In some ways, they're almost anti-musicals. And by the 80s and 90s, I mean, really, the genre is just dead. Hmm. Like, there's throwbacks, like Woody Allen, of course, has Everybody Says I Love You. It's really not until like 2007, maybe a year or two before that, where the musical as conceived in the 40s, the 30s, the 40s and 50s kind of returns with huge blockbusters, giant dance sequences, elaborate sets. It's no longer a midnight movie the way Phantom of the Paradise and um, Rocky Horror Picture Show were. They become glossy again. I think that's what happens in 2007 is the gloss is added back to the musical genre. It seems like that's a budgetary thing. Like to make a musical, um, you need to have obviously people who can sing and dance and act in front of a camera and hit their mark. Like it's not like a Broadway show where like you have this large canvas. Like you have to kind of know exactly what you're shooting, when and where with a budget. Uh, And 2007 is like when we start to really see digital filmmaking. So you wouldn't have to set up for like take after take after take if one dancer has to like start again. Like it makes sense that you would be able to kind of try to reinvent that genre again just because the cost cutting. Yeah, you're not seeing the same. You're totally right. You're not seeing the same like elaborate 100-person chorus line, Busby Berkeley, woman jumps out of a cake scenario. <laughs> it is, I guess, there's there's more flexibility. But it's also interesting because, and I'm glad you brought it up, this idea of like, and we're going to talk about two films that cast um, actors that are not known as singers. I mean, Johnny Depp is not known as a singer, obviously. But the idea of like the original star from the 1930s, you had to do it all. Yeah. You had to dance. You had to sing. You had to act. Like, it was very rare for someone, like, look at someone like Joan Crawford. I mean, Barbara Stanwyck. Like, they're all they're all dancers. They're all singers, too. Yeah, and you were meant to be this, like, multi-hyphenate that there just isn't that expectation of. And especially, like, when you look at in the 60s, the dubbing over of voices, like, why didn't you just cast Julie Andrews in My Fair Lady? Why is it Audrey Hepburn, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think there's a cachet in 2007 of... You know, we all will all like line up at the box office to see what they sound like singing. I mean, look at something like um, Les Mis or Cats. Like, let's, I'm hoping we don't bring up Cats. It'll only be you. <laughs> We're definitely going to bring up Les Mis once. Yeah. It'll only be me. I the, was it last episode where we talked about there was a better cockroach singing and dancing cockroach sequence? Uh, Obviously, like one of the big things that started the 2007 boom mm-hmm. was that um, Chicago came out and just yeah. knocked everybody on their feet. But that's another one where it's singing and yeah. dancing, but it's a relatively small cast. Well, it's true. And it's interesting as you're bringing up down Bob Fosse. You know, Fosse obviously was dead by the time this edition of Chicago yeah. was produced. Um, it's directed by Rob Marshall, right? Yeah. You know, Fosse's huge in the 70s. Like, that. that's an era of musical that's very, very focused, more so, I would say, on dance and choreography than the music, although the music's fantastic in, in something like Cabaret. Mm-hmm. But that's a subversive musical as well. Yeah. It's about Nazis and homosexuality and um, taking place in Weimar, Germany. 
So once Fosse passes in the 80s and you get a lot of those really iconic choreographers who were making film adaptations of very famous musicals, when they pass away, I think it is another sign of why the musical disappears. And so you don't have these strong voices. Well, that leads us perfectly, I think, into uh, our first film for today. When people hear the name Stephen Sondheim, uh, he's known for a lot of things. Uh, He's known for highly trained professional singers being challenged by his music. Uh, He is famously picky about his work being adapted, and he likes to write jaunty tunes about intensely dark subjects. Uh, Aside from the movie we're talking today, he also has a musical called Assassins about different assassins throughout history, all singing at Lee Harvey Oswald trying to get him to kill the president. That's a musical that exists. Um, so, <laughs> I didn't know mm. that. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right. So, it, it and actually has some Would great never be a good movie, it. though. Um, it's, it's one of those. No, no. I disagree. I'm going to <laughs> option right. it tomorrow. Alicia, <laughs> there's literally a song that goes, if you want to kill a president. Yeah. And there's, yeah, it's, uh, it's something, let me tell you. I think... That could be quite timely. (laughs) Well, it makes sense that this is the kind of thing Tim Burton would be associated with. Uh, So we're going to talk about Sweeney Todd today and actors who may not have been the best choices for this role. Although, Cam, you like this movie more than Alicia and I do. Oh, yeah, yeah. I Well, I mean, I think it's... Starting off, I mean, it's important to say that part of the, like, Chicago made so much money. It was the highest grossing movie musical of all time for a long time. Till Mamma Mia, really. People count Alvin and the Chipmunks. I don't. Uh, <laughs> well, then but, you gotta uh, count, like, Disney stuff. Like, that's yeah, just not, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So that was a huge deal. And the fact that they'd been sitting on Chicago for decades. So there was, even though it was a trickle kind of between Chicago, I mean, Chicago also got Best Picture, but between Chicago and Sweeney Todd, you saw Phantom of the Opera and Dreamgirls, like essentially all these older musical properties, people realizing like, oh, we're sitting on cash here. So Sweeney Todd, I I feel like last time, the past couple episodes, I maybe wasn't so good at recapping the movie. So if you don't know about Sweeney Todd, he's a barber who kills people. (laughs) Uh, They are baked into meat pies by his uh, landlady. That's about the gist. Uh, It is a... a, Wow. uh, (laughs) That's a great summary. He's not wrong. That's it. Three hours of that. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's an urban legend, like really a Penny Dreadful story from the 1800s, first made into a play in 1847. Uh, Sondheim saw a 1973 version of the story and then adapted it into a musical in 1979. Uh, then, you know, smash cut to uh, a young art student in London named uh, Tim Burton. Timothy Burton uh, at the time, actually. Yeah, yes. uh, <laughs> wasn't much into musicals, but he saw a poster for Sweeney Todd and was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> uh, he went to Sweeney Todd, super loved it. Uh, and then around 1987, it sounds like, when he was starting to become a, a famous director, he approached Stephen Sondheim and said, I would like to make this a musical. Sondheim said he really loved his pitch partially because Stephen Sondheim weirdly does not like movie musicals. That's He thinks that musicals are not really suited to movies. What you accept on the stage, which is the action will stop dead in its track while somebody warbles at you for four and a half minutes. In the movies, it just stops dead, as far as I'm concerned. So you have to not just adapt the show, you have to transform it. Like he's a guy who's written screenplays uh, for non-musical films. Does he yeah. like the paychecks? Uh, yeah. Uh, but also, okay. uh, you know what? He, <laughs> you think he likes movie musicals. He's uh, also well, got that sweet high school production money rolling in. So, yes. you know. <laughs> oh, yeah. He's uh, he's richer than God by the 1970s already. So he doesn't really care. Uh, but I will say that he d- dislikes 
openly many adaptations of his mm-hmm. work from West Side Story to, uh, you know, uh, Carousel. Yeah, all those. He doesn't he doesn't really like them. Uh, and nowadays he's quite picky. Uh, but anyway, uh, Tim Burton said approached him and two things he said that he liked was Tim Burton said that it was like a, a film melodrama more than mm-hmm. a musical. And also Tim Burton described it as a silent film with music, which, which- uh it's very interesting because this was a silent film. The first film adaptation of Sweeney Todd is 1926. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lost film that mm-hmm. was only 15 minutes, but then they remake it again in 1928 in a full-length version. And that version does survive. It is minorly accessible in that someone has a rip of it <laughs> and then have put a camera in front of their very square television on <laughs> YouTube. So you can kind of watch it. But, uh, you know, I'm really curious to see this 1928, obviously non-musical yeah, yeah. Uh, version, which I believe was British. Oh, probably. It, it, I mean, it's a thing that's been adapted a million times in, in the UK, I think. Um, anyway, so Tim Burton approaches him in 1987. Then uh, Stephen Sondheim says, like, and then I never saw him again. <laughs> uh, he, he got very excited for this idea. Uh, then cut to like uh, almost 20 years later, uh, director Sam Mendes is doing a stage version of Gypsy. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think this is post-Chicago. And Sam Mendes goes like, hey, uh, has anybody adapted Sweeney Todd or approached you about that? And he's like, well, I thought Tim Burton was but you can go nuts if you want so sam mendes uh brings on uh playwright john logan uh who has been a screenwriter for a while uh but the interesting thing is is he was really known his first plays were adaptations of true crime stories uh Mm -hmm. leopold and loeb and the Lindbergh kidnappings Mm -hmm. so uh he's a guy who loves true crime we know later he loves gothic horror because he created penny dreadful Mm. um i love that show yeah, well, there. You that's why you don't love Sweeney Todd. I don't know. No, I'm gonna. I, it's a spoiler alert. I'm going to change what I said yesterday in prepping oh. the podcast and say that I like it. Right. Uh, well, hopefully we can, and I can turn Becky around too by the end of this. Sam Mendes. Uh, oh, I don't know. Do we want to get into it now, Becky? Sam Mendes had some casting decisions that I know you yeah. think are crazy. Let's do this. So I Just get. I genuinely do not get. So I understand needing to have big stars. Like I get it, 100. Yes. percent If you got a yes. music movie musical, you gotta have it. Why, for the love of God? In the 2000s, were they so obsessed with casting Russell Crowe and Anne Hathaway in singing <laughs> parts? So they were going; they were both attached to this film before mm-hmm. Les Mis was even conceived, and mm-hmm. so was Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman makes sense; he's actually a musical performer. Yeah. I yeah. get it. But Anne Hathaway and Russell Crowe, like, why Russell Crowe? Um, and my I understanding, blame the, I blame the Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> my understanding is also that Russell Crowe is, a, I think, a Sam Mendes, but I think Anne Hathaway almost made it through the Tim Burton as well. But he decided he'd mm-hmm. prefer. For Joanna to be an unknown actress. That was exactly it. Well, because he um, had such big stars in the the other roles, and yeah, also one yeah. of them being his girlfriend slash partner at the yes, time. Yes. Um, Helen uh, Carter. Yeah. So anyway, this all happens. Uh, Sam Mendes actually gets frustrated with the casting process. He can't get the people he wants. He bails. I think by that point, the ball is rolling so hard that the producers are like, "Is there any other director?" And Stephen sometimes like, "I've been telling you, Tim Burton." <laughs> Tim Burton. Uh, How is this not making obvious? This movie? <laughs> yeah. He's like, Tim Burton gave me a great pitch twenty years ago. Uh, so they come to Tim Burton. Tim Burton goes, yeah, yeah, you know what, I'll do it, but uh, Johnny Depp's got to be uh, Sweeney Todd. They go that, to Johnny Depp. That makes jo- sense. Johnny Depp goes, 
No. Okay, what uh, I love is that no one asked Johnny Depp if he no, could sing yes. until way further into the process. And then they were like, every, everything was signed. They were about to shoot. Yeah. And they were like, can you sing? And he was like, yes. I don't know. We're he luckily like went to the woodshed. Because uh, I also thought, I was like, oh, Johnny Depp's in a band. Johnny Depp plays guitar in the yeah, band. That's right. Johnny Depp like does not sing. 20 years prior to this. And yeah. can we talk about, so, just briefly, because I don't know if we're going to get another chance to do this, that yeah. Johnny Depp has always wanted to be a rock star more than an actor. And it was oh, sure. having a beer with his buddy, Nicholas Cage, who was like, you should try out this acting thing. You know, it's easy money because you're pretty. Beautiful. And sure enough, it was. Go ahead, Cam. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, so that's the funny thing to me is I think quite often you think of Tim Burton and Johnny Depp and they're like, hell yeah. But this is the one time where <laughs> like Tim Burton's like, I won't do it without Johnny Depp. And Johnny Depp was like, uh, maybe. <laughs> and then the interesting thing is, as you say, his wife at the time which i don't even know they don't even bring up if tim burton was fully aware of this because he again he was not pushing he liked sweeney todd on his own uh but helena bonham carter had seen sweeney todd when she was 11 and says as a child she dressed up as mrs lovett (laughs) and unlike johnny depp she was absolutely obsessed with the role of mrs lovett it's such an iconic uh, role for her oh yeah it's such a great role for women too like such a Mm -hmm. great role and you think about the women who've gotten to play like it was originated by angela lansbury there's a stage version that was filmed of that and her Len Carrieu doing it and it is amazing. Yeah and recently it's worth saying that Sweeney Todd was a bit hot again at the time because there was a fairly uh, lauded performance with Patti Lapone mm, and yeah. Michael Severus uh, yeah. That was a very interesting. Again, the, like Sondheim is kind of a weird guy to adapt because his plays are quite often black box ish sort of musicals. Mm-hmm. And this Sweeney Todd, the interesting thing was everyone who was not Mrs. Lovett and Sweeney Todd was the uh, orchestra. Mm-hmm. They were all playing the instruments. You can find a pretty good uh, medley uh, from the Tony Awards. Uh, I with, think around um, this time there was also a lot more interest in North America in meat pies like that's really where i can remember <laughs> sure. like all the meat pie shops kind of you know on queen street and stuff here in toronto like showing up around like 2004 it was the cupcake um, of the mid-2000s <laughs> yeah like it got exported overseas or it was coming from you know uk and i think possibly that helped sell this yeah project. sure and what a great time to remind people that you could grind up a person <laughs> uh but yeah anyway so that that's pretty much how it's set up and from there on they get a pretty all-star cast alan rickman the first of uh, what two movies about alan rickman being a powerful man who locks up a woman <laughs> in a tower uh, that we will discuss uh mm-hmm. timothy spall a great story mm-hmm. uh he took the role simply because his daughter really wanted to meet johnny depp and mm-hmm. he said that went so well because johnny depp was so nice to her <laughs> that he was like wow that that was a dumb reason to take a role but it was really worth it and, <laughs> spall, uh, spall is wonderful like he's so he funny just is so well cast him and looks yeah. looks the part of the like stars that they cast him and uh, sasha baron cohen as pirelli yes. are like yeah. chef's kiss perfect yeah. that's exactly who should be playing that part for stars and a real uh this is a real first time outside of kind of the Ali G role mm-hmm. for Sasha Baron mm-hmm. Cohen. So I think it was a real kind of coming out of the flexibility of him as an actor. Is Bor is Borat the same year? Oh, just okay. before. Two thousand six. Just before. So Borat's two thousand okay, got it. So like he's he's riding on the, the coattails yeah, of yeah. Borat, which is interesting. But I think this was Hollywood being like, So you're gonna settle down and make like normal movies, right? Like that was kind of the yeah. expectation for he's him. He's so handsome. And, yeah. and his uh yeah, I think that's also a thing. Nobody knew that he was so handsome. But it's also uh his big thing, which unfortunately never came to pass, was a Freddie Mercury movie. Mm. So I think he also oh. was really eager to uh flex his chops. <laughs> 
He's yes. an actor who sings, and that's one of those things that I think people don't really understand the difference between a singer and an actor who sings. And that's exactly mm-hmm. what he is, and he's very good at it. And mm-hmm. it's worth saying Sondheim, because Sondheim was heavily involved. Uh, like I say, he hates most of his 60s and 70s adaptations. So now he is heavily involved. And one thing Sondheim says, which is a criticism people lob at this movie, is that singing is not quite up to his crazy uh, no. singing well, standards. I have but, big problems with Helena Bonham Carter, specifically sure. because I think she misses a lot of the jokes. She she plays it really crestfallen more than evil. The whole yeah. film is very one note for me, and that's my biggest problem with it. But we'll, we'll get to that. Cam, go but, ahead. <laughs> uh, as I was saying is uh, Sondheim says he prefers to cast actors over singers when it comes to movies. Because, again, he, he's this guy who he thinks, like, for instance, all the songs, almost every single song has lines and stuff cut out of it. Mm-hmm. Because Sondheim thinks that a song cannot be as long in a movie as it is on stage. Oh, they chopped the hell out uh, of this. This is a three hour long musical cut down to an hour and a half. I think both of the ones we're talking about have pretty significant cuts, but this one, yeah, this one has a full hour cut out of it, which yeah. is pretty wild. So there is a ballad of Sweeney Todd that explains the whole story that they it's had, gone. yeah, that they originally. I mean, I'm sure we're going to get to this cam. They had originally cast oh, yeah. Christopher Lee uh, in this role as like the gentleman ghost who was going yeah. to be mm-hmm. like the chorus, like the Greek chorus that would kind of guide <laughs> us from scene to scene. Which I actually don't hate that concept. Um, no, but hey, <laughs> this there, turned there's out also a different. good uh, Sondheim quote where he he kind of appro- he approves of the cut as much as that's the weird thing is is that is a great song from the musical it's so which is good. unfortunate but it's, uh, they cut all the catchy songs out i think that's the biggest issue i have is like the catchy uh, stuff's all gone like god that's good is gone like it's all, it's very there's weird. a lot of catchy songs Becky. <sighs> <Come on. laughs> there's like <laughs> 10 bangers in sweeney todd but uh but steven sondheim the funny joke he says is he's like I'm going to sit here watching the movie Sweeney Todd and at them asking me to attend the tale. He's like, I'm attending the tale. <laughs> How much more can I attend the tale of Sweeney Todd? Uh, but that's that makes me laugh. And the funny thing is also is leftover. One of the ghosts uh, was Anthony Stewart Head, who now shows up for one scene. And you're like, wait, why did he? Why is he here? Why is he going? Yeah. Uh, but he was supposed to be a ghost later on. Hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's an interesting adaptation. They chose to focus also... Uh, People who love the stage musical, the the young couple, they cut a lot of that out. But I think that works pretty well. Their focus was uh, Mrs. Lovett, Toby, and Sweeney Todd. And actually, specifically, Tim Burton says his interest is more Toby and Mrs. Lovett. And that's why I think um, mm-hmm. he likes... And actually, it's a change that uh, Sondheim likes as well. Why he makes Sweeney Todd... like He makes him just kind of a one-note joke guy where he's so boiling with rage constantly that the joke is just that he is like not even of they call him dead like tim burton and johnny depp are like this man is already dead Mm -hmm, he is just rage so yeah actually the toby part in my mind i barely remember toby from the stage musical the little kid that they adopt when they kill uh, (laughs) satcha baron cohen uh, who's in love with mrs lovett uh, and uh, and ends up killing everybody essentially Um, that actor who plays him is quite good and he looks he looks the part and I think it's his first film, too. Is it? Uh, him yeah, and Joanna really and I think even Jamie Bowles, Camber, mm-hmm. Cam- Campbell Bowers uh, are all it's all their first films. And they're mm-hmm. great. But they, they do kind of seem a little different because they're uh, stagey. But yeah, so it's 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 an interesting adaptation. I do like the comedy of it. Like, I think By the Sea is so much funnier I than it is on stage. I was just going to say that's that's when I that's the part of the film that makes me frequently rewatch this. I mean, mm-hmm. we've had it on Hollywood Suite for 
in a number of years off and on. And we've done, you know, things with it, like a spotlight on Tim Burton and Johnny Depp stuff. And I always end up having to rewatch it, but I look forward to rewatching it. And then I'm always confused how I feel about it at the end, but that by the sea sequence in the film with the old timey bathing suits and that kind of, you know, 1850s, 1860s idea of vacationing in England. I love that sequence. That's oh, my yeah. favorite sequence in the whole film. I also like the, like, I think the kind of ironic stuff works best. So one of the reasons why uh, John Logan and Tim Burton, John Logan continued to work on it past them and he's with Tim Burton. And one of the reasons why they connected was uh, Tim Burton and uh, John Logan both really love the old amicus horror movies. So stuff like, mm-hmm. you know, like Theater of Blood and like Dr. Terror's House of Horrors. Uh, so I think that they... They make it a lot like one of those, like one of those revenge movies that's just about a crazy character taking revenge. So it's not really how it was marketed. I guess that's maybe. Oh, well, I mean, it was literally sued for false advertising in Great Britain because it was not marketed as a musical. (laughs) Apparently, it caused quite an uproar because they did not show songs. When they were on the press junket, there was a lot of concern that teeny boppers were going to show up to see Johnny Depp and then be exposed to people having their their throats slit incredibly graphically. And that's something I want to bring up to you because, like, Tim Burton movies are spooky but they're not violent. And this one mm-hmm. is like a straight up violent film. And Cam, you had an interesting thing about the blood. Oh, yeah. So the blood uh, is purposely. And I guess the same thing was applied. It's the same uh, special effects people that did Sleepy Hollow. Mm-hmm. And, and they want the kind of surreal blood. And I think the blood is meant to look like hammer horror and yeah, Amicus blood. Agree. It's that weird paint color. Like and it's it just does. like red paint. But at the same time, the sequence, like my other favorite sequence is the reprise of Joanna, where it's like Mm -hmm. this love song and he's just slashing people's throats like crazy. And apparently there's so much blood that on set the entire crew had to wear garbage bags. (laughs) Like, I mean, there's a part where it just covers the lens. They obviously were planning to just have these arterial sprays. But that, that I think was tim burton's uh thrust and i believe i couldn't find the stuff to back it up again but i swear i've heard him say that he wanted it to be black and white except for the blood Mm. and you kind of see that in the coloring because it's a fairly gray Mm -hmm. and grim victorian kind of england but uh except for the blood which is so crazy and i mean god it's so violent like i think of the the death of judge turpin where instead of slicing his throat he stabs a razor into it it's so gross. It's, it's kind of a good payoff, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. And how do you pay off having killed a bazillion uh, people yeah. and, and all those bodies thudding down below? <laughs> oh, Alan, so Alan Rickman. God, I oh, miss Alan him. Rickman. I miss him so much. It's Yeah, I mean, he lived a good life, but it's just tragic that we don't have him anymore. Yeah. Um, he's so perfectly cast in this. He's repulsive. So gross, yeah. And But you get, you get it. You get his yeah. desire to control um, young, pretty women. Like it yeah. breaks my heart though, is that there's a song in the musical that I really wish they had kept in, which Judge Turpin sings called Joanna Mia Culpa, where he actually mm-hmm. struggles with what he is doing. And it's the first time you see him. Um, and like Sweeney Todd's epiphany, it's that decision mm-hmm. of like, yes, I am turning to the dark side. It's like, mm-hmm. should I do this? Yes, I am. And it's, it, it more makes the foil of him and Sweeney Todd more prominent. Um, and I think mm-hmm. it also makes him a more interesting and more vile character because he deliberately chooses that he is going to basically marital rape this woman. Yeah, but I also feel yeah. like, to me, I feel like there's it's, that's also maybe the difference between the stage and the screen is like a character like Judge Turpin. You can't have a guy who like, 
uh, rapes a woman into insanity, yeah. plus kidnaps a child, plus sends a guy to Australia so he can rape his wife. Yeah. Uh, it's just tough to even like that guy's just a, a mustache twirler from minute one, mm-hmm. you know. Speaking of insanity, I think the other sequence that is so well done because it's really, really scary, but the idea of comeuppance is wonderful, is, you know, Joanna is sent to an asylum and we find out that wigs are made from the hairs, the hair of, of women committed to asylums. And there's a whole room of the blonde, bald women that they've shaved to make wigs. And uh, they throw the like the warden of the asylum into that cell and all the women attack yeah. him. Yeah. And that is like, I, I, I don't think a lot of people talk about that sequence. And I don't I don't know the musical the way you guys do. I am a very non-musical person. But I think this is if I ever got a chance to see a stage production of this, I would do it in a second. This is also this was also a ballet in the 1950s, which yeah. please bring that to Toronto <laughs> sure. before COVID is over. Um, but that sequence, I'm not sure if it's in the musical, is really was really scary for me and it's a it's a non non Sweeney Todd like Sweeney Todd's not really involved yeah. in it what do you guys think of the title sequence because Tim Burton is so famous I for his title, title sequences. sequences I miss them so much and the way they set up movies and we don't do them anymore and there's such an art to them like I can't like yeah. I can't remember three quarters of seven but god I love the intro title so to this that. is this is like the meat pie factory sort of uh, sequence it's actually done by Richard Morrison who's um, a British title designer who goes all the way back to 1989's Batman with uh, Tim Burton he was the one that which is such a beautiful title sequence where you have the you don't realize that it's going to be the Batman signal, but it's this uh, excellent use of miniatures. So he came up with a non, you know, he's a non-CGI guy, and I think this is one of his earliest CGI title sequences. And I remember seeing this in theaters and knowing something was off just based on the CGI in the title sequence. It was like, oh, this isn't, and I do think I like this film, but I I remember being disappointed in the first five minutes because it was an early indication that this is almost too high budget, going to be too digital, and Part of the reason why we love Tim Burton so much was that, which is that tactility and that handcraftiness that is always there in his early films. I'm there with you. But I feel like that's the same thing is um, in Alice in Wonderland and Big Fish. Big Fish yeah. is, I think, like really the tipping point where he go, starts to go a little too heavy into CGI where it's you start to lose the believability of it. Yeah, like the CGI works for Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which I think is the film that pre is the one that's right before yes. Sweeney yeah, Todd. Is. You know, that works. That's fantasy, like how, how you know, whatever. But um, for the Oompa Loompas <laughs> and things like that, which is just that one Tamil actor, which is so wonderful. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it just, there's something about the CGI that I I wish Burton had made this film kind of like how Cam was indicating in, let's say, 1992. Yeah. Like if his yeah. initial inquiry in 1987 to Sondheim's rights had gone forward quicker, I think this would be a canonical Burton. Um, it would have been a Michael very Keaton. different world because I think it would have been yeah. instead of Batman, actually, yeah. which is yeah. kind of wild. <laughs> well, would Michael Keaton have uh, have played Judge Turpin at that point, right? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I don't know. Maybe it would have been. I, I mean, he wanted uh, God. Uh, yeah, I don't know. He wanted Ray Liotta to be Batman. So what? Uh, oh, man. Oh, yeah. We can get into that in another episode. Of <laughs> we, we, 80, uh, 89. We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> Okay, I just want to bring up super quick that uh, a friend of mine is like a trained uh, professional opera singer. And I went to him to ask him, like, oh, like, what do you think of the music? Like, I think Pretty Women is really like the strongest, like, actually mm-hmm. sung song. Um, and so I had him go and watch. And he's like, singing is great. But I had an anxiety attack watching Johnny Depp whistle into Alan Rickman's face. And mm-hmm. I was like, okay, that's actually pretty funny how we watch movies this way. Um, but let's talk about a movie that 
actually does have that like homemade hand-spun feeling. Both the original and the adaptation of it have that same sort of homespun feeling. And before I rewatched it for the podcast, I had to like really time when I had available brain space to have a song stuck in my head um, <laughs> because I knew You Can't Stop the Beat was going to be in there for freaking yeah. days. It is, yeah. of course, based on 1988's John Waters' film Hairspray, which is arguably also his most family-friendly film. Uh, and it's autobiographical and that it deals with his love of regional dance shows, which we're going to get into. And Hairspray was this movie that uh, it did incredibly well on Broadway. And movie studios were just salivating to make it and get it right. In fact, uh, I wanted us to hear Adam Shankman right now because he's got a great story about how the job came to him and the big deal that this was. I had just been hired to direct the new film adaptation of the musical Hairspray. And what with the rabid fan bases of the original John Waters version, the phenomenon that was the Tony-winning Broadway musical, and the extremely high hopes uh, from the studio, they were gunning for me like I was a new media residual check at a Writers Guild negotiations meeting. (laughs) Nightmare. In fact, all that my new boss, Bob Shea, said to me was, and this is the truth, congratulations, don't f*** it up. So, Alicia, you love this movie. I love this movie. Let's talk about Hairspray. Yeah, so this is 2007's Hairspray, which, you know, the Broadway production um, comes about in 2002. So it's not that long after the Broadway production premieres. Um, And it was, like you say, a huge hit and definitely funded John Waters for (laughs) many, many years. He's very appreciative of that. I, I will flag myself as a giant John Waters fan, like contemplating a tattoo but can't decide what specific film to <laughs> somehow impart pink on flamingos, my body. And, pink flamingos. Just, yeah, you I could just get flamingo. a pink flamingo and you would know. You would know. I, You know, I thought about a big lobster from, um, oh God, why am I, the Maniacs, what is it? I can't remember which film it is. Anyway, it doesn't matter. We won't get into my tattoo uh, <laughs> fantasies. Yeah, so this is this is much more a, an adaptation of the musical than a remake of the 1988 film. The The film in 1988 isn't a musical. No. Not traditionally. Like, there are a lot of rock and roll sequences and a lot of dance, but no one really starts singing in the 1988 version, which, um, of course, stars the incredible Ricky Lake and her feature film debut, and um, Divine. Uh, the Divine. John Divine. Wat- yes. The Divine. John Waters's, you know, partner in crime who very, very sadly would die just a few weeks after the premiere mm. in 1988 of um, of Hairspray. So it's very much, it's the music, it's the film version of the musical. So I want to keep that really separate because I, lo- I think a lot of John Waters' diehards that I surround myself with really dislike this 2007 version. And for me, I do like it, but I've, I've had to really parcel it out. It's the shining the book versus the Kubrick the Shining. I get it. Mm -hmm. That's a great, yeah, that's a great analogy, actually. Most famously, this film is probably well known for casting John Travolta as Edna Turnblatt, the role that Divine created in 1988. And of course, John Travolta is uh, a dancer, which we've talked about on the show in the past. Um, Not necessarily a singer, but we're going to hear him sing and certainly not an overweight person. Yes. Mm -hmm. And he's also not a woman. In case any <laughs> confusion, one of the things he is not. Um, and so this is him in 
for lack of a better term, drag, uh, wearing a fat suit, which caused quite quite a bit of controversy. But, I mean, weirdly, that's the reason why so many of these actors, like Paul Dooley and Michelle Pfeiffer, agreed to be in this film. I wasn't sure I would take this movie until I heard what John was going to be doing in it. And I said, how can I not take a job where... I can be on the set watching him sing and dance and drag. I knew that John was playing this part when I took the role, yes. I thought it was such perfect casting. It was really exciting. The film is a kind of set, it's set in 19, I believe it's 1963. And um, so it's really in the background of the civil rights movement. Something important to kind of note is we don't get um, a Supreme Court decision on miscegenation until 1967 with Loving versus Virginia. So when you have a white character in Hairspray and a black character in Hairspray in a romantic relationship, it would have actually been illegal. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're talking about teenagers, actually. So there's a lot of import to the background story of this, but it takes place around a local musical dance show that was kind of modeled off the Buddy Dean show, uh, which um, was broadcast in Baltimore from 1957 to 1964. And uh, Tracy Turnblatt is this confident, I, I guess over, we would say overweight. She's quite she's quite overweight, um, but confident, loving person who believes that she could be just as popular and famous on this dance show as this kind of white supremacist, terrible teenager named Amber uh, and her evil, evil mother that's played by uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Who has the best name, Velma Von Tussle. Like, they keep the original names from the John Waters movie, Mm -hmm. and John Waters has the best names. Yeah, and of course, it's going to be slightly Germanic or Scandinavian, (laughs) just to give you an indication of um, her bearing. But in that original role, the one that Michelle Pfeiffer plays is um, actually Deborah Harry in the 1988 film. Uh, And Christopher Walken is um, Tracy's father. He's wonderful in this, reprising the role that Jerry Stiller did in the original. And Jerry Stiller also shows up in this as well. Mm. Yes, yeah, he's got a great cameo. I I do love this film. It's okay. If the 1988 version of Hairspray looks like a Diane Arbus photograph mm. come to life, then the 2007 version is very much high school musical yes. mm-hmm. come to life. And of course, we have Zac Efron as the heartthrob. And he, I think he's quite good in this, actually. He's mm-hmm. coming directly off. Like, he hadn't, he was not what he is now. He was coming off high school musical. He was still oh, a yeah. Disney kid. Same year yeah. as high school musical, too. Yeah. So it's not, he, he's not even done high school musical yet. There's yeah. one more to come. Yeah. He very controversially, through his agent, uh, with his family support, turned down the international tour of high school musical, like the live show that occurred after the film, to do this film because he felt it was very important to him and he liked the 1988 version. I have a lot of respect for Zach Efron. He has made, you know, we have now 13 years beyond this film we're talking about. He's made some very interesting career choices, <laughs> in my opinion. Mm-hmm. I will cite the Paperboy by Lee Daniels, and I will cite <laughs> Beach Bum. Go out and see sure. those insane oh, Zach Efron What about him playing Ted Bundy? Should we talk as like sure. as oh, yeah. a um, relatable <laughs> sure. heartthrob? Like that's a whole. I other mean, thing. I also sure. highly recommend his uh, current weird travel show where he just seems to have an ex- existential crisis every episode. <laughs> Didn't even know about that. <laughs> and but seems I to in. not want to act anymore. Uh, but <laughs> there's I, a part um, where he eats a yeah. bowl of pasta and essentially says. Uh, this is better than acting. <laughs> like, I yeah. never want to look good again. I just want to eat pasta. I think there's a lot. There's a lot of fetishistic trash in the 1988 version. Even though this is the John Waters family film, there's it's still mm-hmm. really gross. Like the 1988 version and that fetish 
is missing in 2007, but that's okay. Yeah. We, if we're yeah. going to get a 2007 version of Hairspray that we wanted to be exactly like the 1988 version, then just get John Waters to make an yeah. update. Yeah. You know, you don't need that. So this... I like seeing the trajectory of where Waters says, and he always, in his books, I read every book that he writes, and he writes one at, one at least every other year. You know, he really attributes a lot to what Hairspray has provided him and and this um, popularity and this mainstreamness that he never thought he would achieve and never wanted to achieve, but nonetheless has provided him a lot of benefit and added a lot of benefit to his collaborators, the Dreamlanders, many of which almost all have passed away Um I think Mick Stoll's still alive. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, I, I would, I think this is a great film for like a kid who really loves musicals. You could watch this. So yeah. my question is, is this like the gateway drug? Like I talked about Rocky Horror Picture Show being the like the here's the weird midnight movie crowd. This is like yeah. the here's John Waters. <laughs> you want some weird yeah, shit? I, Here you I, go. I think it could be. Um, we should mention Queen Latifah it's is fabulous. in as Motormouth Maybell, and that's one of I think. And apparently, Aretha Franklin wanted the role, yeah. but wow. they went with Queen she Latifah, which also I think wasn't. Is the right she also wasn't in great health at the time. That was part yeah. of the thing. Is that that's was the beginning good. of her health problems. So they, I don't yeah. think they could get her insured. So this is you know the songs are very catchy. Um, I think John Travolta gives it his all, and I like how they transformed Edna's character in this. Edna, um, you know, the Divine character in 1988 isn't as emotionally fragile as John Travolta's character is. You know, this they they were very clear that John Travolta's character as Edna Turnblatt has not left the house in like 20 years. She's very mortified by her weight. She's she's kind of has some mental health issues that you don't see in 1988. And so when she's empowered by her daughter to realize that she is beautiful and much like how Tracy is confident and believes in, you know, um, integration and is going to put herself out there, she kind of influences her mother to do the same. And it's it's a nice, it's a, it's a nice, you know, it's just a nice moment for me. And that's also worth saying that that is some of that is a change from even the stage musical. Yes, the uh, they uh, switched it uh, quite a bit. The Edna stuff, um, which is interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting choice. Uh, they also uh, very much beefed up the Velma von Tussle role. The the song she has with Christopher Walken is uh, not in the musical. It's it's mm-hmm. Edna and uh, the father. So Cam, uh, we didn't discuss mm-hmm. it in Sweeney Todd, but you mentioned one of the mm-hmm. reasons why, and I love this hot take. People don't like Sondheim as a movie musical is because there's no dancing, uh, yeah. which I I actually am on board with this. I think it's a very clever mm-hmm. take. Um, this one is. All dancing. And it is. This dance is wonderful. It's awesome dancing. And Adam Shankman is a choreographer. He's a choreographer slash director. And he had worked previously with Queen Latifah. Slash dancer. I am a big Adam Shankman (laughs) fan. I got to say, his work is really, I think he's very good at figuring out how to translate um, movement onto film in a way a lot of Mm. other directors can't do. Like the way the angles he shoots are amazing. I think he's. He's a throwback to the 1950s. Yeah. I don't think people know how to do that. And he's he is what we're, why we're talking about musicals as being popular in the 40s and 50s. It's a lost art. And he really brought it to this film. Part of how they did that is they rehearsed the heck out of this yeah. thing. Like they, yeah. they record, rehearsed it like a Broadway musical. And Zac Efron was also was like, I was coming off High School Musical. I thought I could do this. He's like, this was next level bananas. They were in rehearsals for like eight, nine hours a day, just running these spots all the time. But they also rehearsed them with fake cameras. So they would know mm-hmm. where the angles were of where the camera was going to be and how. So they actually shot for edit, which is incredible. Yeah. You can see that that's, yeah, the the camera movement stuff, I think, is also very uh, old school and in a way mm-hmm. that a lot of modern musicals don't. He's, a, he's an interesting guy. And if you look at a lot of his uh, 
dance background. It's pretty cool stuff. I recommend looking up uh, the 1990 Oscars Under the Sea performance. <laughs> where he is one of the dancers, uh, oh. which is funny. He's also a rare director where if you Google him, one of the first photos that comes up is him jacked and shirtless. Wow. Uh, which hmm. is unusual. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no, he has. And I mean, he's done the dancing for like almost any. He choreographs any kind of non-dance films dancing. So like Adam's Family, Values, Boogie oh my Nights. God. Mm-hmm. Uh, did he do the Thanksgiving sequence? Yes, he Adam's- did. That is exactly oh. what he was credited with is the oh. Thanksgiving play. Uh, so yeah, j- if you think of a fun dance thing he choreographed it or was on set consulting so it's like new respect for him yeah as much as i don't always love his movies he also officiated the wedding of freddie prince jr and sarah michelle geller which is a pretty good fact (laughs) because he did he did all the dancing on buffy the vampire slayer oh my god Uh, so yeah uh he's uh he's a very unusual guy and i think that and it's also i think a great showcase mark shaman did all the music who now does everything but uh the songs are amazing He's like, yeah, he's a very funny music writer. And especially uh, since we've lost many of those people, again, from the 80s and various places. Uh, but it's, again, what you I don't think you'd get a better version. I would like, a, I, I think people often overlook the fact that Divine is kind of also like a fat icon. Yeah. Uh, yes. And that's what 1988 was. And I think the stage musical, the Edna role was Harvey Firestein, who is yeah. not not fat. Uh, he's a larger so, man we'll say yeah. that yes so i i just I think mean, it's hard to sell that in the fat suit but uh, but john tavolta yeah. is having a hell of a time and having a great time and it's funny and i love the accent oh the accent he, he leans so the accent. he's the he, he only one doing it, it. Yeah. and of course when he was on oprah he had to talk about the accent because of course oprah also spent some time in baltimore uh my arms on your arms on <laughs> you know i get for a coke later <laughs> go up for a coke yeah <laughs> How did you how did you perfect that? Well, it was a fight at first because I think that uh, that everyone was frightened of the accent because maybe it wouldn't be understandable or yeah. perhaps uh, it would be too eccentric or something. Yeah. And I said, but it helps me because it's slightly feminine. It's it's uh, it's uh, funny. Yeah. And it helped me be Edna. Yes. Yeah, it's really good. The other, coming back to Divine, the other thing to note that's not in this version is Divine plays a double role in mm-hmm. 1988. So he's he's both Edna and then the super racist owner of the television station that the dance, as a man, realize we probably have a lot of listeners who do not live in Toronto, but maybe they visited. Sure. In the East End, one of my favorite places in Toronto which I hope survives COVID, is Gail's Snack Bar, which, um, Google that, Gail's Snack Bar, <laughs> which serves as the Turnblad apartment and the Hardy Har joke shop that uh, Tracy's father runs. There's so much Toronto in this film. And I, it's actually the year they were filming this in 2006 is the year I moved here. And I remember, you know, hearing that John Waters was in town because, of course, he has a cameo and that, you know, they're going to make Toronto look like Baltimore. And I think they did an, an incredible job of that. Um, And then also I was really obsessed with vintage clothing in that era of my life. And I couldn't get anything because the costumers of this film had (laughs) rented every single dress of that era for all of their extras. And eventually they would be returned. And I've I've bought a couple and I can spot them like in parts of uh, (laughs) in the backgrounds of some of the 
the sequences in the film. But uh, this is such a it's a great Toronto film. Uh, there was a really wide search uh, for who would play Tracy. Mm-hmm. And I know pr- pretty much every uh, woman of size who's in musical theater, I know from across Canada tried out. And actually quite a lot of them were cast in uh, various background roles as mm-hmm. singers and dancers and uh, quite a lot in that Jerry Stiller sequence. So I know that, and that even people who had been Tracy in stage versions uh, were, uh, were a part of it. So that's like a very cool thing. Mm-hmm. I know it was a very exciting moment when everyone was like, eh, who will it be? Who will it be? They, and they, the actress that they cast, they found at a Cold Stone Creamery, which is a American strange, I think it's bankrupt, a, a very strange, uh, or maybe it was a marble slab, one of the two, a very strange ice cream shop. Nikki Blonsky, who unfortunately the rest of her career then revolved around yeah. her weight, which is unfortunate. Yeah, um, but she uh, she rolls with it. She's a yeah. very funny internet presence. Uh, she always calls herself Nikki Blonsky from Harrisburg, which makes <laughs> everybody laugh. And it's an interesting time. Like, I mean, we you can talk about uh, quite often these musicals when they try transfer everybody's like oh you got to get the real people but this one was funny because uh marissa jarrett winnaker who did the role on broadway was like 30 hey if uh, i'm just saying if diana ross can play dorothy at 33 why whiz, not? Yeah. i think we established she cannot <laughs> yeah <laughs> i do think that the fun thing is that there's a lot of throwaway jokes uh i this time i like i think it's very rewatchable because so much of the jokes are these background silly things just like her dancing around in a teacher's lounge that's so full of smoke or uh like i just noticed this time uh at the end when when they expose velma von tussle it's because christopher walken has paid off the cameraman with a giant bag of whoopee cushion yes (laughs) which is just like i think there's a scene where they're walking on the street it's a the intersection of Dundas and Roncesvalles, and they go past a bar, and there's a bunch of pregnant women drinking and smoking. smoking. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, that's the yeah. welcome to the 60s. Musical yeah. Yeah. Yes, it's fabulous. The 60s, yeah. Yeah. Those, uh, those little moments are, are what I think, because, yeah, I think it's like, oh, is this pretty flat? But it, there's a lot of that stuff. And I mean, like, the fact that it's like the fun spinning newspaper at the start is just mm-hmm. miserable news <laughs> about, uh, it's like, segregation. And you're like, oh. Yeah. I really like this film. I know it's not the best. I'm not saying that it is, but, you know, I've seen it a number of times and I rewatching it for this podcast. I had a smile on my face the mm. whole time. It, it, it's worthwhile, I think. Even just totally. go watch that. You, you can't stop the beat uh, segment. Oh, yes. That thing is incredible. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I was going to say, like, compared to Sweeney Todd, which we can split hairs over that music. This is pretty much that's all amazing yeah and different genres too like you've got like 60s Mm -hmm. girl groups you've got like these Mm -hmm. like soul songs you've got your typical poppy 60s stuff like we didn't even talk Mm -hmm. about how great james marsden is this as corny collins uh (laughs) and we don't have time i mean everybody is is perfectly cast in this and they're all amanda bynes amanda bynes singleton one of her great and one of her last roles i think as well which is a little sad but uh i love her in this so much yeah she's super good i mean uh oh god what's her name britney snow as amber Uh, yeah. Jane Eastwood so shows funny. up. I'm a big Jane Eastwood fan. I adore her. Yeah. She's in this oh, as well. Yeah. I mean, so. uh, Paul Dooley playing the other divine part is very <laughs> funny. Uh, it's all very silly. Exactly. I remembered the tattoo. It's um, the lobster from Multiple Maniacs, which is one, <laughs> which of, the, one of the rarer John Waters that Janice <laughs> of course somewhat you get recently the rare one. Which you will eat <laughs> wearing a sleeveless tuxedo and <laughs> putting your foot in someone's crotch. So that is where we're going to end this episode. I want to say thank you so much to the fabulous Alicia Fletcher. Thank you. And just to, if, for people who did not listen to the Flashdance episode, that is what Becky was referring to <laughs> with mm. the sleeveless tuxedo and me 
putting my foot in someone's oh, crotch yeah. while eating lobster. Yeah. I already didn't Thanks, know what Chucky. she was talking about. <laughs> it's been a while since we recorded that one. Cameron Maitland, yeah. thank you so much. <laughs> thank you for remembering. I do my best. That's what I can do. And uh, we're going to be doing our final episode of season one coming up in two weeks. You're going to want to join us for that because we're going to watch a movie that the writer-director wrote three chapters of a fictional novel that we only ever see the cover of in his movie. <laughs> uh, we're going to talk about that as well as Violent Swans. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to chat with us and find more great content? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. The home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. Uncut and commercial-free on four HD channels and on demand. Learn how you can subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Kevin Lipset. Until next time. You want to be famous. Learn how to take blood out of car upholstery. That's a skill you can take right to the bank.